everybody. Welcome to the Mediocre Observer Podcast. This is Josh. We have a fun guest today. Um, as usual, I'm, I'm, I'm always excited to talk people talk to people that are smarter than me. Uh, no exception today. She's got her doctorate in clinical psychology. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, been working as a therapist for over 11 years, has been independently licensed and operating her own private practice since 2016. Uh, specializing in relationships and breakups the whole time. Most recently, she opened her own coaching practice in 2020 to help people with relationships. So what does she know, everybody? Uh, I'm thrilled to, to welcome to uh, the pod, the breakup doc, Dr. Andrea Liner. Welcome to the Mediocre Observer podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we are so thrilled to have you. Um, I want our listeners to know I had enlisted... Um, Andrea here to talk to me about, I was interested in talking about critical thinking or lack thereof, uh, <laughs> as I observe it <laughs> out in the world. And it just so happens that, that she, you know, indicated an interest in, in talking about this and she happens to, as I mentioned, specialize in sort of breakups and dating and relationships. I, first of all, I just want to tell everybody According to the Oxford English Dictionary, critical thinking is the objective analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment, okay? Now, the places where I see this crop up for me, for, for, for this guy, for this idiot in this world, really two places that it's so screaming painfully obvious to me. Among our electorate, when I look at political issues, uh, hot button topics, social issues, uh, elections themselves of individuals, um, man, it's hard for me to view us as a thinking people sometimes when I, when I pay attention to those things. And the other area is certainly dating, romance, just meeting people generally. And it happens that in this digital age, both elections and dating, at least, you know, if you're taking advantage of social media and dating apps and things like that, offer what I view as a fire hose of humanity, just so much, so fast, so many people that it's hard to not notice recurring themes, recurring issues. And, and that's a great place where you really showcase critical thinking or lack thereof. I guess my, my first question are we getting dumber, Dr. Liner? Are we getting dumber as a populace? No, it's interesting. And it's a very interesting way to pose the question because we are in an age of information. We have access to information in our pockets. We, we don't need to go to the library and look at the dusty set of encyclopedias to find the answer to, you know, when did Mount Vesuvius erupt, for example. However, we are also inundated with opinion all the time. And the fact that opinion and fact have become so conflated with each other, I think has become one of the biggest issues in viewing us as either intellectual or getting dumber. I think it's the inability to distinguish between those two things has become a huge problem. And just how emotionally invested we get with all of our positions and stances and values on things. And the first thing I thought of is when you gave that Oxford Dictionary definition, the word objective is used. And unfortunately, in most cases, people are experiencing things subjectively. Yeah. So how do we get back to the facts? How do we get back to an objective way of viewing things when everything seems so intertwined with opinion, value, judgment, adjectives, essentially? Yeah. Well, and, and I would like to, you know, point out that when I, you know, I don't consider myself to be some brainiac. I'm, I'm not a... 
I'm not a Mensa member. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, just a dude, um, cruising through life, trying to figure this thing out. And frankly, I'm, I'm half an idiot. I mean, I'm 47 years old and I can't seem to find a way to carve a happy go of this fucking existence. So in a lot of ways, I ain't the brightest bulb on the tree. What I talk about critical thinking and what I observe in my fellows, I don't mean, you know, can you name all of the presidents or explain the internal combustion engine to me? I, I mean, you know, how do we approach problem solving? Um, how do we parse information? How do we consider facts? Uh, what do we consider facts? Uh, how, how do we question sources and motivations of messengers? And, or do we? Do we question? The, and my observation is a lot of times, no, we just don't. Uh, in, in fact, it is a recurring difficulty for me in, in relating uh, harmoniously with folks is it seems that many of us haven't ever really sort of overhauled our own core ideology. We haven't ever sort of torn down to the studs. Why do I think some of the foundational fundamental things that I do and are they valid and are they serviceable? And, and do these actually make sense to me? And even do I really, really, really believe them? Or am I just behaving as if I believe them because somebody told me way back when I should and I do, so I have been and I just never looked back. And so some of that sort of why do I think the way I do? Do we institute the watcher in our heads? Do we sort of watch our own thoughts and go, well, that's, why am I thinking that? You know, where did I come up with that? And I feel like, no, really, I've, I've done things in my life that have almost placed me in a position where I was very much compelled to tear some of those things down. I was, I was almost forced to really, really, really dig deep, take an honest look. And, and as a result, you know, I wound up actually having some pretty dramatic shifts in, in some of what I think and how I think. Um, and a lot of people just haven't had to do that and good for them. You know, at the same time though, yeah, some of the lack of doing that might actually be hurting us. It might actually be hurting our, our society and, and each other, you know? Um, do you see some of that? Do you see people that seem to be carrying around old congealed ideology, maybe generationally indoctrinated stuff that's just, useless. It's just silly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it comes back to a little bit of what I started alluding to fact versus opinion and things can get so conflated. For example, this is something I talk about with clients because this is an example. Most people can wrap their heads around. A lot of us were taught from a young age to be kind to other people. And depending on how that was taught to you, how that was modeled for you, that can just feel like a fact. Everyone should be kind. That's just how it is. That's how it should be. In reality, that's an opinion. That's not a fact such as the sky is blue. That is a value that has been passed on. But because people hear it so many times, it's so drilled into them, all of the examples in their lives, caregivers, family, maybe examples in the media, whatever, are exemplifying the same thing, we get really attached to that on an identity level. And we get really emotionally invested in that idea. So the, the fact that we might have to question it and say, well, wait a second, you know, not that I think we should question being kind to each other, but just to use the example, if you ever took a second to, to question it, it feels like you're questioning who you are on an identity level. And a lot of people's egos can't handle that. It feels like if this is something I've subscribed to my whole life and built my values around, and this has been foundational for me to question it, to change it is almost being 
some kind of a, a betrayal to myself. And it feels too threatening for us to examine things that have felt so foundational. Because what if we rock our whole foundation? What if everything we thought was stable in life comes crashing down? That's a really threatening idea to our brains. And our brains love consistency. Our brains love certainty. We hate inconsistency and uncertainty. That's when people get symptoms of things like anxiety and depression, when things feel out of our control and we can't predict them. So we really like to fall back on these things that feel like facts to us. And someone has to be really brave, really willing, and really kind of prepared to be off kilter for a little while to start questioning some of those foundational things. And not everyone is up for the challenge. Absolutely. Well, in, in you know, overall overhauling our, our ideological station, much like overhauling a, a motor, um, you're we're really just tearing it down. We're, we're taking it apart and taking an honest look at it, an honest inventory of what is this? Does it look fantastic? When I, when I break it down to the crankcase, is everything still nice and clean and smooth? And man, pistons seem to be moving like they're supposed to. If so, great, we're gonna lubricate and reassemble those parts and reuse those parts because they're great. If in the process you find a beat up old bearing that's turned into dust, you're gonna replace that bearing because this doesn't work. Um, and, and so it's not, when we talk about an overhaul, it's not a, you must be wrong. And so you must tear it down and, and definitely change everything about what you ever thought. It's, can you tear it down and take an honest look? Are you willing and, and courageous enough to actually ask the questions and say, is this, is this viable? Is this serviceable? And, and, and silly little things like you, you talk about being kind, for example, frankly, I'm not convinced we all give a whole lot of thought as to what kind I'm air quotes kind even means, you know, a lot of us um, conflate kind with, for example, not making waves or not offending anyone or something like that. Well, Maybe, but my God, man, if somebody's about to drive over a fucking cliff and you might cause them a little alarm by saying, hey, there's a cliff up there, you're going to die if you don't slow down or turn the wheel. Well, I don't want to be too kind to interrupt their Sunday drive. I mean, you know, and so what do we mean by kind? Or, or you see you see things like this in traffic sometimes. Somebody wants to stop at a green light and let somebody break the law in front of them because they think they're being nice to this person. Well, you're actually causing jeopardy to all the people behind you and all the other people. So you're not really being nice. You, you feel like you're being nice, but you're not really thinking through far enough to go, I'm actually causing more damage and, and jeopardizing more people just so I can feel good about this thing that I think is, is nice. Well, it's not nice. It's dangerous. <laughs> and so I think we, there, there are things I observe like this. I go, ah, I, I see what you're doing. I, I see why you think this is nice. Is it, or, or, or is yeah. this just a ego feed for you yeah. with the best of intention? Because right. I don't think most of us are bad intention. I just think we're not thinking that deeply. Right. And that's part of why I always have people um, when I'm working with them in therapy or coaching, when, when they're saying some of these things like, you know, this is just how it is, or this is how it's supposed to be. I always ask them to define what that means for them. In, in psychology land, when we're writing papers, we always talk about operationally defining our terms. 
you know, when we say kind, what is the definition of that for this purpose? When I have someone who says, well, I'm just trying to, to go with the flow with dating. I'm trying to not be too controlling. What does going with the flow mean to you? Does that mean, you know, not making mountains out of molehills when you don't like something that's going on? Or does that mean allowing things to happen that feel incredibly unsafe and dangerous to you? Like what right. does going with the flow mean to you in this experience? Yeah. And that is important. Yeah. Defining these, defining these terms can be uh, important. We all have different ideas of what these things mean. Yes. Um, so I'm going to posit something at least to our listeners and, and I'm not necessarily going to try to corner you on this because we're going to get into a, a little bit of pretty serious ideological stuff. It can be fairly divisive, but I have no problem sharing my own view. Um, I, I, I have a working theory right now, and I almost always have a working theory on these things. Um, and I might be wrong and I'm ready to be moved off of this, off of this ideological perch. Um, I blame Christianity in America uh, as being the beginning of the end of critical thinking for most Americans. And I say that because last I knew roughly 62 to 67% of Americans still identify as Christian. What that means, again, defining terms, whole different topic, but about 62, 67% of Americans identify as Christian. One of the fucking 10 commandments, one of the, you know, uh, terrifying uh, cautionary statements that is just inherent to Christianity is that thou shalt not place any idols before me, right? It, it, when this is offered to us, and many of us Americans, you know, whatever, seven, eight years old, somebody gives us the good news, and it's this, what to me is a literary atrocity, this absolutely obnoxious book full of bullshit, and it comes with so much fear, this vengeful, hateful, angry, jealous, you know, smiting, smoting God. And if I even question, if I even ask, if I even doubt this ideological system, it is gnashing of teeth and lakes of fire for me. Mm -hmm. I am doomed, not just in this life, but for eternity in the afterlife as well. I mean, it is this terrifying threat, particularly to a child who is fairly available to Santa Claus and Jesus and hell and Satan and all of this stuff that, oh, that's what happens. Okay. These seeds get planted so deeply within us that, you know, I, I believe they can become, you know, part of our, our, our deeply rooted foundational identity. And it can be, a lot of us wind up believing this shit because we're afraid not to not because if you were to just corner us in the most honest open safe place we would say oh absolutely virgin birth immaculate conception parting of seas you bet man that makes sense no but because we're afraid to question it at least with our outside mouth and so we just don't and we bounce along and we you know and, and we wind up believing in it because well what if it is the case i don't want to go to hell you know just in case but that's the beginning of the end of philosophizing and questioning and asking and examining because we're literally told not to so i have a hard time not blaming that and when we talk about looking at some of these ideological structures and maybe trying to overhaul them well, as a pragmatic question, if you find something, you fix it. If you find a faulty part, you replace it with something that works better, or you put a better motor in it altogether. You replace it with something that you do believe in. However, if our efforts are stifled or there's a hard bottom at don't look, don't, don't open the hood, 
Well, we will never, we will never get any better. But the reality is in, in life, in actual life, nothing changes, nothing changes. My 47 years on this planet are as they are. And the belief systems that were deep underneath there, God, no God, this God, that God, they may have been narratives that were playing in the subconscious part of my brain as I was moving through life, but I was still moving through life and the same things that happened still happened. And it's, is it possible that I, I am free and safe to examine these things and that I actually stand to risk nothing by doing so? And that it is in fact the belief system itself that stops me from examining. That's a really interesting um position to take. And we didn't talk about this ahead of time. So you have no idea what I'm about to say here. Um, but, um, so I am not Christian. I was not raised Christian. I was raised Jewish. So I have a kind of different perspective on this. And I will start by saying, I agree with you. And I also recognize, you know, I don't quite have the like to stand on because I wasn't indoctrinated into that world, but being an outside observer it always blew my mind as a child when I would learn about the differences between Christianity and Judaism. And, you know, I, I was one of those kids that had to be taught, don't spoil Santa Claus for your friends. You know, we know that's just a made up fun thing, but you don't need to ruin it for others. Um, but when I heard about things like heaven and hell, like that's not a thing in my religion. We don't really believe in an afterlife. We don't really believe that you're only doing good on this planet to benefit in the next life or to not get punished in the next life. We believe you're here. You might as well do some good work while you're here because you're here and because your fellow humanity is here. And so hearing some of these more extreme examples throughout my childhood and, and early adulthood and being the only Jewish person in a lot of spaces that I was in, especially Greek life in Texas and, and places like that, just wondering how the critical thinking was coming along because there was a lot of just accepting things at face value that I don't think would have made sense if they were delivered in any other way. And the way that family and identity and belonging plays into it, that what if I do question this? What if I'm not that into it, but my family won't accept me if that's the case. And I'm going to lose my main connection and human need for belonging with my primary group of origin, if I don't go along with this and the conflict that causes people, um, a lot of ripple effects from, from blind faith. Absolutely. Ironically, um, that was St. Paul, um, uh, in King James in Corinthians says, uh, for ye suffer fools gladly seeing ye yourselves are wise. And, uh, my dad one time, uh, commented, you know, a couple decades ago, you know, Ooh, you, you do not suffer fools gladly. And, and he's not religious either. And it's, we, we don't, we don't walk around quoting, you know, Bible passages. Um, in, in my understanding of that particular passage is, is Paul was actually being, uh, sarcastic in the, in the, uh, in that utterance, but it's, uh, this idea that, you know, it, it's hard for me not to go, man, who is the fool here? You know, I, I, I so often think so many people around me are just, just painfully stupid in so many ways. Um, and I just struggle mightily to, to be able to sort of tolerate it. And, and I'm the miserable one. I'm the fucking miserable one. So who's the idiot now? You know, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm too smart to tolerate you people, but not smart enough to figure out how to tolerate you people. 
huh. So I, I continue to examine my own bullshit as well, but it's, um, so I, I do want to say we had spoken briefly before this and, and one of the things very obvious in our electorate, let's say nuance, the ability to think in and really live in nuance, right? I mean, most of life happens in that sticky gray in between. It's not all black. It's not all white. It's not good versus evil. Almost everything is somewhere in the middle there, man. And it requires more complex, deep, nuanced conversations. Um, and we don't like that. We, do we, we, we are not a nuanced bunch. And I guess I, I look at uh, the, the 2016 election to me and, and taking, taking topics like immigration, an incredibly complicated topic that has so many humanitarian concerns, so many economic concerns, so many logistical, just practical issues to confront with it, um, an entire system of, it, of, of immigration that most people would agree could use some serious overhauling. Um, and, and at least one of the two primary candidates did a great job of boiling immigration down to a three-word mantra, build a wall. And about 42% of our electorate said, yeehaw, build a wall. You bet. That's the answer. That's it. Keep them out of here. Barring things like the fact that a wall is a horribly ineffective uh, mechanism to secure a border. Um, it's also incredibly costly and in that, of course, Mexico is not going to pay for it. Of course, we're going to not only pay to build it, but to keep it up and to patrol it. Um, and that also the net impact of illegal southern border immigration, the net economic impact is a positive one for America. And the fact that a lot of the immigrants that we're so concerned to keep out, these marauding brown people heading towards our southern border, are actually asylum seekers fleeing deadly conditions in their homeland, forgetting the entire basis of colonial America. Of, of what, how we came to be. I mean, it's just, there were so many things steamrolled right over with build a wall. It doesn't make sense. It's not a policy. It, it, it necessarily excludes all of the necessary factors, but it speaks to 42% of the electorate that refuse to Google anything, are not willing to read any, anything that might be antithetical to their line of thinking, and just learn a tiny bit. Just, just be available to real useful information. And in fact, quite to the contrary, when somebody that is more of a policy wonk starts talking about the complexities, they tune out, oh, that person's shrill. I can't stand to listen to her talk. You know, I was, okay, but she's telling you the truth and she knows her shit and she's a very informed person and it is nuanced and it is complicated. And that's why we need somebody smarter than us in there being a part of the solution. And no, 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 build a wall. Ah, how, how do you communicate with that? How do we have a conversation with a low information, refuse to learn folks? Ooh. I wish I had an easy answer for you because I would be calling the White House right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it does speak to, you know, the dumbing down of America that we referenced earlier and just that we, we like our information in bite-sized pieces. 
Um, we like things in quippy one-liners, something that can fit on a square Instagram tile. That is what we want to believe. And as humans, human, the way human psychology works, it makes sense that it is that way based on how we were wired although we've evolved a lot and have a lot of options here at this point, but our brains really like to categorize. It's either this or it's this. It's good or it's bad. It's right or it's wrong. It's male or it's female, you know? <laughs> Things yeah, like that. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And it's hard for our brains to look for that middle ground. And when we do look for that middle ground, it requires some intelligence. It requires some humility. It requires maturity. And there is a concept, um, an old psychoanalytic concept that I think was formed by Melanie Klein, who's one of the mothers of psychoanalytic theory, this idea that our brains have two positions to be in. One is called the paranoid schizoid position. <laughs> so Melanie Klein did a lot of research on infants and the infantile psychological experience. So she was positing what is going on mentally for infants who have no ability to understand their surroundings, no ability to communicate, kind of how traumatic that must be for babies. Um, and it's very trippy stuff. I always joke that you need to like drop acid to read her research because it's, it's very bonkers. But um, some of the, the tenets that came out of it was this idea that babies and then us at various times of high stress in our lives are in this paranoid schizoid position, meaning very black and white thinking. Things are either this or they're this. This person is a safe person. They feed me. They are good. This person is a bad person. They leave me out in the cold. We can't really cross wires on that. We can't understand this is a good person who did something bad. This is a bad person who did something good. No, they're either this or they're this. It simplifies it. It's the only capacity you have at certain points in your life. And then the goal is, as you get older, as you learn skills, as you mature, to move into what's called the depressive position. And I'm not sure why she named it that, but my personal theory is that, kind of like you said, the more aware you are, the more knowledge you have, the less ignorance you have, kind of the more depressing things are. Because you start to realize that within the good, there is some bad. Within the bad, there is some good. That's confusing. We start to realize that, wait, this person who I, I trusted my whole life actually has done some bad things and I don't want to listen to everything they say as fact. And that's a kind of depressing place to be, a kind of shattering of the illusion. And it requires maturity, life experience, that humility I mentioned to question beliefs that you have and maybe tear away from some things that you've identified with very strongly in the past to move into that depressive position. And then throughout life, we do oscillate between the two depending if, if it's a high stress situation, if our resources are low, if we've been through a trauma, whatever it might be, we can get shifted back into that paranoid schizoid position. And I think that that is what the general population and the people who are advertising to us and feeding us information, I think they kind of prey on that mindset, that mental capacity. Yeah. Oh, that is dope. I appreciate, I appreciate that little, uh, journey. I, I actually, so you, you had mentioned the Instagram. I, again, I'm old, I'm 47, man. I I've had a hard time keeping up with the ticks and the talks and the Insta chats and the, you know, I, but I have always enjoyed the, the freedom that uh, there's a whole different conversation, but that, that Facebook has always given me to post photos, videos, rants, whatever I can post, you know, literally, 
you know, page long stuff or I can do a little thing. And I don't like the limitations of like Twitter, 140 characters or whatever it is now, you know, uh, and, and Instagram with photos. So, but I did a, a big old Facebook rant uh, not too long ago about the, um, this bizarre uh, notion that just so many people are grooming children to become, you know, uh, transgender people. Like, no, they're not. I'm sorry. No, no, it's, it's, this is imaginary. This is a, this is not a real problem, but boy, we're putting a lot of energy into solving it, you know? And, uh, and I, and I was looking at, this is, it seems to me, this is a great example of our, our lizard brains that are, as you say, man, you know, when I, when I meet a person, is as nice as I might dress up and I comb my hair and I try to look and act civilized somewhere in there. I'm still this caveman. I am still this. Okay. Am I trying to fuck this person? Am I trying to fight this person? Do I need to run from this person? Should I make an alliance with this person? And, you know, but to some degree, who and what are you, where do you fit into this life if I'm living and, and how can I put you in a box in a category in my brain, file you away and move forward. And, and obviously, any sort of gender fluid, non-binary, gender non-conforming stuff is terrifying to that lizard brain. It is absolutely confusing, terrifying. I could get high centered on that and just stuck there, not knowing what to do. And it's, um, you know, I guess the the call that I put out to my fellows is that we be bigger, that we be bigger than this, and that we play the tape forward and realize that it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. You don't need to do anything with this person. This is not a, you know, this is not a thing, man. It is, you know, I've, I will tell you, I've had, you know, periods of my life when I have been very promiscuous, you know, I, I absolutely have almost always in the pursuit of something more meaningful, you know, seeking that love that I so much crave that I believe we all do. Um, but absolutely, man, I've, I've, I've been with some folks and not once, not one time have I been shocked by the genital configuration of someone I'm being intimate with. This is just not a problem, even for a 47 year old person who's been fairly promiscuous this is a non-thing this is not a problem boy can we stop but that's lizard brain shit that is absolutely i need to know what you are and i've got three options or two options or what you know fit in a box you you know it's like, no man we are more complicated than that you know and there have been uh, there have been trans people since ancient times this is not a new thing this is not new so I want to pivot to dating a little bit, or just talk about dating a little bit, because this is your this is your wheelhouse. Um, I'm going to tell you, I've had I've had some experiences um, with the online datings, and I'm a big believer, man. The same people that are online dating are the same people that you meet at the grocery store, church, a bar. These are the same people. I don't think it's a different bunch of people. Uh, so I don't necessarily blame the interface uh, for the, the difficulties that I have navigating. I, I do blame the people. And I will <laughs> tell you, it starts for me with the idea, and this is a critical thinking thing, um, people today seem to view texting or chatting as a viable form of communication to actually do nuanced, complicated things like get to know someone. I remember right, right around a third grade lesson in paralanguage that talked about inflection, tonality, cadence, 
um, facial expressions, body language, all these other things, everything but the words, um, that is almost all of what we take from each other when we are trying to communicate. Um, and so I've sort of always viewed that face-to-face -face is obviously going to be best. You know, telephone can, can be a close second because you do get that tonality, cadence, inflection. Um, and then, you know, texting, man, texting is so horribly ineffective. We quite literally created a secondary language to bolster it called emojis. So now we're a bunch of adult humans that communicate in fucking cartoons and people think this is reasonable. People, sisters, how long have you lived here? Like, first of all, you don't care about my family structure. That has zero to do with me. Uh, and also, why are we doing this via text? Pick up a phone like an adult. Let's have a conversation just two people talking and in between fear and an inability to understand that this is a futile effort. Texting is a futile way to get to know somebody. It mostly doesn't happen. You know, people are terrified to pick up a phone, whether it's because of awkwardness or fear of stalking or some sort of other, you know, assault potential stuff that could follow that. Um, but they just want to text their way all the way through it. And, and ironically, a lot of the same people that, that are afraid to pick up a phone are perfectly willing to meet in person. So they will drive across town, meet somebody in person where that same person could easily tail them home, record their license plate, know where they live, do all of the stalker type things real time. Are we not better than this? Can we not? I'm a product of the 80s. I used to pick up a phone. Hello? No caller ID? We just said, fuck it. I'm going to give it a shot. Phone would ring. We'd answer. You'd have a conversation. Nobody I know ever died of phone. It just, it never was a problem. Thoughts on that? Thoughts on texting as a viable form of, of communication for adults these days? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the first thought I have is generational differences. Um, that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And I even notice it in my own marriage a little bit. I'm 33, my husband is 38. And there are times where I'm trying to text him something and he's just like, fucking call me. <laughs> or he'll just, he'll just call me and I'm in the middle of typing him something. Um, and there is a preference to, for, for the call. And I think there are a lot of different reasons why, why some prefer one over the other. However, you have to look at what is your ultimate goal in this particular situation. And when you're doing online dating, the goal is to get to know someone as well and as accurately as possible so that you have as much data as possible to make an informed decision about moving forward with them or not. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I, I will admit I am a very millennially millennial and I do prefer texting a lot of the time. However... It depends on what the objective is in that moment. You know, if, if I have someone who's just wanting to catch up, hey, how's it been going? What's up with your life? But I'm watching my show. Well, that's kind of cool. I can kind of do both at the same time. I don't have to give you my undivided attention and turn off what I'm doing to talk to you on the phone if we're texting. But if I'm trying to get to know someone, do I want to go on a date with them? Do we share values? Do I get the feels when I'm talking to them? What are they like? You have to be willing to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. And if you are someone who's uncomfortable with the phone I, or, or prefer the phone or whatever your preference is, everything in my book comes down to communication and being transparent with the other person. So if someone says, you know, I'm really not comfortable talking on the phone, but I'd be comfortable meeting up for coffee, that might be confusing, but hey, at least they're telling you where they're at and then you can decide, do you like that or not? But I think- no. 
Not, not is the answer. <laughs> I just, I just don't have the time. I am not willing to drive across town to meet with somebody to then realize, oh, you don't know how conversations work. Right. You don't know how to use your outside mouth and carry on a conversation because it's, it's critical for me, man. I've got to have a, a witty, fun, conversational person, or I'm just not interested. Promise, you know. And I, and I would never judge somebody based on a phone call in their entirety and say, well, you know good or bad, that's it. But I can tell if it's available. I can tell if a, a conversational capacity is in there. And that's, that's what I'm seeking there. But yeah. Yeah. And I know, you know, when I advise people through the dating process, because, you know, I, I help people through the breakup, but I also help them re-enter the dating world. So we do a lot of online dating stuff. And a lot of it just comes down to being open with the other person saying, Hey, I never feel like I get to know people well, via text or chatting, I'd really love to hop on a FaceTime or a phone call um, to just better see if, if it would make sense for us to meet in person. And then whatever their response is, it's all data. If they get really weird and, oh, I don't know if I want it, cool. They're probably not for you. And if, if they're able to say, oh, that's an interesting point. I don't usually do it that way but I'm willing to give it a try. Oh, there's some data. Okay. Like it might be a, a little bit of work with them to get them, you know, on the phone rather than texting, but at least they're open to trying and they're not shutting me down right away. They might be a little bit more growth minded, willing to try new things, willing to, to do it differently. I like that. Let's proceed. Like there's data in every step of the process, but the first step needs to be learning what it is you care about, how you operate and how to communicate that in an effective way. That's not going to be demanding, off-putting, entitled, aggressive, um, or even vague, confusing, all of those things, you know? Like, so the communication skills are a huge component of this. And I have known people who can't yeah. consistently over text, but there always is need for clarification on things like tone and sarcasm and, and meaning. For sure. And, and for me, I mean, the other thing is, man, frankly, I'm a very active person. I, I I, I seldom am, am sitting there with hours of downtime. Well, man, I just wish I had something that involved my whole brain, my eyeballs, both my hands, and I could be hunched over like Mr. Burns using a three-inch screen. I mean, I just, I, I, I really, you know, the, the technology stuff is, can be super amazing, super valuable. It's also a lot. And I do not believe for a second that we are actually well-suited or well-adapted to be constantly plugged into it. Um, and it is all consuming. I can talk on the phone while I drive, while I cook, while I shop, I can be in motion and talking on the phone. Uh, whereas I cannot be texting because I'm literally, it's my face, it's my hands, it's, it's all there, it's everything. And I just, it is this stop your life and text. Do you have any brothers and sisters? Like, no, dude, I'm not going to do that. I won't do this. Um, and I, I would only challenge the, the age uh, generational thing. And I, and I say that because I only ever attempt to date in my very exact age range or, or up really. I mean, like, you know, and so I, uh, I am talking to people that are my age and, and grew up with the very same stuff, but I just think a lot of people are adopting it and migrating towards it. And admittedly, I have been in industries my whole life where I'm clearly, I host a podcast. I am comfortable talking. I am not afraid of having a conversation and exposing myself, uh, to the potential awkwardness or whatever that might befall me. And 
And I think a lot of people are. And so I think texting is a shield from that because you get a chance to hide, you get a chance to pre-plan your your statements or whatever but that's not what i'm looking for because that's we're not going to sit across from each other playing chess on a sunday morning and and i'm going to wait for you to text me back we're going to be having a fluid conversation and it is the authenticity and transparency that i fucking crave that comes through that and frankly awkward can be sexy and beautiful because it's fucking real it's real you're showing me your whole awkward beautiful perfect flawed self i love that show me that don't i'm not looking for a performance i don't want a fucking fake performance i want to know who you are even if it is awkward that's great and, and i think that's another disconnect if we don't think deep enough to go wait a minute this guy's going to see me naked emotionally, physically, at some point, we're going to be, you know, open chested guts on the table. Here's who I am. Now's good. Let's start now. Let's begin that process now. Um, because dating a fake version of you only to later, eventually find out who the real person is not exciting either. Um, so I'm, I'm just a big fan of let's, let's begin trying to walk towards each other and be transparent and authentic as soon as possible knowing that of course there's going to be missteps and awkward statements and jokes that don't land. And, and we're going to have to show each other a little grace and tolerance. And I'm far more graceful and, and you know, or gracious and tolerant of things like that than I am of dodginess and distance and, you know, what I consider a, a, an inadvertent form of a flaming hoop to jump through. I actually had a woman tell me something to the effect of, she likes to text until things get serious, which to me, I'm like, so then never then, because they never are. I mean, I understand what she means, but it's like, dude, the person you're texting with, you are almost forced to imagine the whole person behind that keyboard. Once you get on the phone, you can actually begin to have some sense of who this is of course face to face is going to be even that much better but but this idea that we're going to text until it's serious i can't help but wonder man which weeds are you pulling through this process who is willing to jump through all those flaming hoops for you and still be ready are, are those really the people that you're looking for i mean maybe maybe they are but you may be inadvertently kicking out a lot of wonderful people who are like, no, that makes no sense at all. I will not do that. My time is more valuable than that. And yours should be too. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't help but feel like I'm a little bit more of an adult on it. And, and I would like to say, I, I am not confused that any woman who's in my age bracket, uh, most women who are in my age bracket in America have at some point been the victim or, or nearly a victim of some sort of stalking, rape, sexual violence, assault uh, events or, or more. And so I'm not confused that these things are very real and that they are extremely traumatic and that they can inform our behaviors later. I'm also uh, crystal clear that I didn't do it. And I'm also crystal clear that, as I say, it, you know, for one, almost all of these events come from safe people. They come from people that were already in the house, if you will. There are people that were already friends, family members, lovers, somebody that you knew that was safe. That said, if, if some stranger wants to do these things to you, at some point, their primary goal is going to be to be in front of you. They're going to have to physically be near you, where you are. And so to 
shelf the phone conversations because you don't want that data out there, but be perfectly willing to meet that same person who you on some level are afraid is a stalker or a murderer in person. Boy, again, now they've seen you real time. They know what your hair color is. They know what your license plate is. They could literally follow you home. I mean, I guess I just can't help but think I, I'm pretty sure there's risk there too. You know, you're, you're definitely willing to put yourself into that position. I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of sense to be weird on the phone calls part, but it's, it's very common. It's very common. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough thing between allowing fear to be that storm signal or adopting fears from other people. A lot of times that we hear, Oh, don't give out your phone number. And we just adopt that as fact, you know, oh, believe in Jesus. Okay. Fact. Uh, and then we move forward based on that and start making arbitrary rules um, that, that we call boundaries, which inadvertently, I think, can actually derail what could be an organic progression of a relationship. Maybe less so on the phone number thing, but more so on if you have a, a prescribed, like, First date, this can happen. Second date, this can happen. Third date, this. By a month, this should be happening. If you've got this, this map in your head of how this goes, when it goes, man, are, are, are you showing up? Are you here for this, for what is right now? Or are you trying to read from some script that you've got playing some narrative back there? And like, how authentic is that? How present are you? You know, and I think a lot of us inadvertently, we have these fears that we've developed maybe from our experience, maybe from other people's, you know, horror stories. And we wind up adopting these, these rules or boundaries and we just act disingenuous and inauthentic and weird because we, we just terrified to just show up, just be here, just bring your whole self, good, bad, and ugly to the party. And let's see what happens, man. And it's okay. Maybe it goes horribly and we can laugh about it later. Maybe it goes great and we're just so happy we showed up. But can you show up? Can you be here in your whole self? And I think a lot of us can't. And I think a lot of us are so ruled by fear that we, we struggle so much to, to be here for it. What do you see when you're, you're counseling people that are out there dating and their, their fears manifesting real time? Do they stand in the way at times of of being available, being their authentic selves? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to jump in because you, you touched on so many different things I'd love to address. I think fear is a big part of it and that fear can get split into different categories. There is fear of actual safety and then there's fear of vulnerability. And those are can be highly related. Sometimes someone's had no real experience with any true safety issues, sexual violence. They're just afraid to show someone who they really are. And so hiding behind texts where they can craft and recraft and, and edit um, their thoughts before sending feels safer. Um, but to your point, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles in getting to know someone is when you're not being your authentic self and why aren't you? And that's why I, I believe that doing some inner work is always a really great idea when you're in the dating scene, because we want to address what those obstacles might be for you. Um, and I think we want to think about how can we pre present our most authentic self and what method of communication is best for that. Um, now, I don't necessarily think, you know, going to a different topic, the rigidity, that map you speak of, these rules people have, I think it can go both ways. I think, I don't think anyone should have an assumption of, we need to jump on the phone immediately or this is a no-go. I don't think anyone should be of the mindset of, 
I'm not ready to jump on the phone or meet in person until X, Y, and Z has happened. I think it should be a, let's take this particular example and just pay attention to how this one thing feels, this one person, forget it. You know, we can use our other experiences to inform our decisions, but they shouldn't completely dictate them. And that's where the critical thinking comes in, the nuance comes in of, you know, in the past, I haven't had the best luck giving men my phone number early on. But this guy, I'm seeing a lot of different data from him, a lot of different evidence here. So I can keep that in mind, but maybe I want to try, you know, maybe I do feel comfortable doing that a little bit earlier with this particular person I'm talking to. And not not subscribing to a pre-existing notion or event and clinging onto it, wet knuckling it. Yeah. So, and let me ask you a sidebar. Um, this is back to this fear where we were talking about fear of trans people, um, you know, fear in dating generally. Are we, it, it seems to me that, that my brain has one biochemical response to fear and our civilized selves call fear anxiety, worry, concern. These are all synonyms for fear to me. And, and although they may have different levels and different reasonableness levels and all that, it's just fear but I'm still this lizard brain caveman person who my brain, the fear that my brain, it seems to me is used to dealing with is mountain lion, uh, you know, uh, like bear, you know, uh, we're running out of food. We're going to die. If we don't find water, like serious life and death shit. And when I get anxious because I'm about to go play a show or I'm about to go into an record a podcast or do a meet a new person for coffee. It's the same biochemical flood to a greater or lesser extent as if I was seeing a mountain lion that is an actual threat to my safety and life. And this is where I get into that, that watching, watching my thinking thing and going fear. Oh, I have fear. I have anxiety. Okay. Is it valid? Is this, what's the purpose here? Thanks brain. Thanks for the indicator. Okay. Am I okay? Am I going to be able to walk into this Starbucks and meet this person for coffee and probably make it out alive? I bet so. You know, has discomfort ever killed anybody? Not that I'm aware of. Let's give it a shot. Let's show up, you know, as opposed to adopting it and going, oh man, I am, I'm terrified of playing this show. So therefore my life is on the line. Thanks fear. I'll, I'll behave accordingly. You know, like, no, man, it, to some degree, I feel like we forget that it's it's just a storm signal. It's a, hey, man, there might be something to look at here. Doesn't mean it's a fucking rattlesnake about to bite you. It could be nothing. Yeah. It's just, what's yeah. we, do we have a relationship with fear where we're even aware that, that that's happening and that, that we're adopting this fear as reality? And this is that feelings versus facts thing, right? Yeah, I... I agree with you. And it's kind of funny what you're describing doing is like the, the questioning it and okay, well, where does this come from? What purpose is it serving? What's a more realistic response to this particular situation? How can I tweak that thought to better serve me in this situation? There is a name for that. That is called cognitive restructuring. That's one of the basic tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy is how can we change our thoughts in order to impact our feelings and behaviors differently? So that is a great thing to do in that setting. And I want to offer that you're absolutely right. Some of those more reptilian brain fears that are really just based on immediate life or death, um, you know, aren't as applicable, of course, in, in the year 2023 or whenever people are listening to this. But we also have developed over time social fears. 
because at a certain point, once we became more of a tribal people and less um, kind of fending for ourselves in small groups when we banded together, social acceptance became survival currency. If you were not socially accepted by your tribe, you might be shunned. You wouldn't get the protection of the group. You wouldn't get the resources of the group. And that was life-threatening at the time. So a lot of our social anxiety pieces and that, you know, obviously we're not being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. We're not about to die because we're walking into this Starbucks meeting someone or we're going on stage to perform. But there is some of the times that more midbrain, um, more evolved sense of fear of, will I be ostracized? shunned some kind of social pariah for this action and will that impact my sense of societal safety and that's bigger for some people than other people yeah but i think what i'm hearing you say is there is still a few layers under it a life and death component a far more dire component because that's your social whatever to don't want to get kicked out of the club, kicked out of the tribe, booted off the reservation. And next thing you know, you're fending for yourself and you, you don't stand a chance out here in the wilderness by yourself. And so, I mean, I, on some level, you know, I, I, that's what I think I'm hearing is that we still kind of subconsciously attach that to something way more serious than this one event really is. And it can feel more real when it's more of a social fear than a, you know, I don't, I know I'm not being chased by a tiger right now, but I, have the societal fear kind of stepping up that is when it's harder for people to recognize that it actually is still arguable like yeah there, it could feel really real you know what if i get booed off the stage what if i go viral and people hate me and send death threats to my house like i don't know um, <laughs> Man, but, that's a bad performance no, <laughs> i'm gonna kill you <laughs> <laughs> I, hate your feeling. I hate your comedy <laughs> but but when it feels more applicable when the fear does feel a little bit more related to the reality it's harder for people to remember that you can still question it you can still pick it apart you can still restructure that thought yeah and it's good to remember that that's always available for any type of thought no matter how real it feels yeah well and and i do you know just a sidebar i mean i i do believe we all have a very real fear of intense pain and suffering <laughs> and you know, my observation, having walked a lot of people through 12-step stuff, including, you know, deep searching relationship sexual inventories where we catalog back over every relationship they've ever had and, you know, look back at our, our fears and ask ourselves why we have them. And, and underneath that fear and underneath that fear and underneath this fear, you know, for example, the, 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 the fear of, you know, we, we attach survival to, to money, you know, we attach, you know, uh, capitalism, the pursuit of, you know, capitalistic pursuits can, can conflate directly to survival for most of us though, in my humble observation, when I ask them what's underneath that and why, what if that happens? What if you do lose your job? What if you do go bankrupt? What if you do lose a house? And you keep tearing it down underneath those is, well, then I'm a loser. Oh, well then, so what does that matter? Well, then people won't like me. Oh, so what, what then? Oh, well then, then I'm going to be alone. Oh, okay. Well, and then what? Well, and then I'm going to live out my life in miserable loneliness, you know, and, and it's, you know, I, I joked about this with, with people that are close to me that, and then everybody's going to get in a circle and piss on me and say, what a fucking loser. Look at that guy. We knew he sucked, you know, and it's just this wildly bizarre, you know, they're going to send me death threats because the performance was so bad, you know, this wildly inflated thing. 
but what that effectively is, is it's a fear of pain. It's a fear of heartache and grief and that tremendous pang of loneliness and being ostracized and, and not being embraced by your tribe, by your fellows, right? Which I think is the most natural thing, right? We all want to be in the club. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. It's so reasonable to want to be loved. Um, and so that fear of dismissal and os being ostracized can be pretty loud, yeah. you know, and it's not necessarily a, a survival fear per se. It's a, right. I don't want to live out my life miserable either. You know? Right. Absolutely. And I think that that fear is what keeps a lot of people from being fully authentic because unfortunately the risk of pain, the risk of rejection is the price of admission for any yeah. connection that you're going to have for, you know, and, and there quotes out the ass about this, like all the cliches in the world, like, you know, anything worth having is, you know, worth trying and failing for and risk and reward and all of those concepts, but, but they come from a real place. And something I talk with clients about a lot is the concept of distress tolerance, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's how well can you tolerate feelings that don't feel the best feelings of anxiety, feelings of loneliness, feelings of guilt, how can you sit with those and actually let yourself metabolize them without being like, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. I have to do something about this right now. I, I can't sit in this. I, the idea of even potentially being rejected by this person is too much. I'm not going on the date. Yeah. So I'm going to blow it up now before it ever even happens. And, and how many people do that? How many people self-sabotage like that? Things are, things are going really well. Let's chuck your grenade at it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Because as it gets, and this happens with some of my clients all the time, and, and sometimes they don't notice it's a pattern until someone else points it out to them because it feels like they're in different situations. But, you know, I've seen people, the second it starts to get serious, when it's not just about the fun getting to know you part, it's, oh, you actually had a little bit of a meltdown in front of them, or you saw their stress response after they got a bad news phone call from their boss or something. It's getting more real. Oh my God, I can't handle this. And they do something to blow it up. They cheat, they ghost, they, you know, do something egregious to make the other person end it because the idea that this is getting more vulnerable and deeper is so threatening to me. And I can't tolerate that feeling. Yeah. Well, and, and so at the end of the day, I mean, I guess I, I'm not, we all have fear. You know, mm -hmm. I will tell you my life is shot through with fear. I, I am an anxious, anxious person, man. And, uh, and I, you know, sometimes I feel like the best I can do is everything that I can do to mitigate that, to keep it at bay and to keep a, to keep an awareness of it and, and to try to, um, to not let it rule me. And that's the thing, man. Again, that, that fear is a, is a, is a warning. Hey, there might be something here to be worried about. Is there maybe, maybe not, you know? Um, and I would just say, I, I heard a guy, uh, he described fear as being a thousand miles long and a thousand miles high and paper thin. And I love that imagery because, man, I could see me strafing the walls of this thing, terrified to just push through. And, uh, and so many of us do that. And as you alluded to, you know, might even blow up potential wonderful things because they are, would rather do that than just risk that little bit of exposure, you know? And the fact is they're, they're already going to hurt anyways. They're already hurting with the loneliness of, of being disconnected you're just continuing that or you could risk continuing to be lonely, but give a shot. It may be, you know, it's, are, are we thinking through this, you know, and I'd say often not. Um, 
I want to um, ask just a weird example that I hear cited a lot these days. And, and really, this is probably 20 years old at this point. Um, back when Oprah, uh, you know, made the, the book, The Secret, a, a big thing, you know, um, and now a lot of people talk about manifesting as a, you know, this, this practice and okay, fine. You know, I, uh, again, being, being more of a pragmatist, uh, being a more, what are the nuts and bolts, obvious observable realities here for actually the 12 steps, looking at the 12 steps, man, I am, I am an atheist. I am a non, non God believing person. I, you know, I do not believe in the benevolent, you know, dude in the sky, pulling strings, you know, cosmic puppet master figure. I, I, I can't, I, I can't see that as, as viable. And, and 12 steps, at least as they were written by the original organization that, that first created them, you know, involve, invoke this, this, this God idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am a product, I am a product of, of doing these, you know, lots and lots of times and carrying lots and lots of other people do. And I wouldn't change that for the world powerful. There is so much power in self-produced evidence. There is so much power in self-examination and tearing down my own shit with some thoughtful guidance from an outside, non-involved third party willing to help guide me along the way, but it's powerful. But I look at that process and, and there's a, you know, common sort of idea among a lot of 12 step circles that, that you just can't do all this without God. That is actually a necessary component of this. And to that, I say bullshit. I say, you know, I would challenge anybody, anybody to sit down and earnestly um, catalog all of their shortcomings, their resentments for their whole entire life, their fears, their entire relationship history and sex inventory, um, and, and then go back and try to own all of those resentments and say, how did I make these happen? Where am I accountable here? Where am I responsible for placing myself in a position to be hurt like this? To whom do I owe apologies? Where do I need to go make reparations and flip the whole thing and stop being a victim of all of life's people and start to take some accountability? And then to go share that with at least another person, all of it, your deepest, darkest, grossest, most awkward secrets, all of those resentments, all of those fears that you're embarrassed to say, all the horrible shit you've done to other people, all of these things, and the sex inventory, similar idea, where have I aroused jealousy, bitterness, suspicion, where was I at fault, what should I have done instead, whom have I hurt, you go back and look at all that. And then you go out and literally repair the damage done. You literally go knock on doors and try to make those amends and fix that shit, pay back that money, all that stuff. Then make yourself available to walk other people through that process. You go do that and tell me you don't grow up, you don't wake up, you don't have a dramatic psychic shift in how you approach life. Bullshit. Of course you will. And frankly, I don't give a shit whether you invoke God in it or not. These are logistical, pragmatic. You can't do this and not get some results. Okay. And I kind of look at manifesting similar way. Sorry, that was a long sidebar, but similar thing with manifesting. People talk about, Oh, I'm not kidding. I had a woman tell me she manifested a brand new house purchase. Well, I mean, ish, if, you know, if by manifesting, we mean clarity of focus, set an intention, you decided you were going to get pre-approved for a mortgage, shop for a house, go look at houses, make offers on houses, go under contract, get an inspection, sign the deal. Then I guess you manifested it. 
but it, it's really is that manifesting or did you just you got clear that you wanted to do something and you took the necessary actions to achieve that thing i guess i just think it's a little less mystical and it's a little more logistical obvious if you do this this is far more likely to happen than if you don't do this it's probably not going to happen thoughts yeah. on manifesting yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because just as a hobby, I find it interesting and I've taken some some courses on it and, and tried to adopt some of those practices into my own life, um, kind of for fun, um, but also I've, I've looked into kind of what's behind it. And there is some neuroscience behind some of the tenets of it. But again, to, to your point, it does come from a little bit more of a pragmatic, logical place than, than people want to think. But basically, you know, there's this part of your brain called the reticular activating system. And it's the part of your brain that's responsible for um, the, the like riding a bike phenomenon, like when something becomes kind of muscle memory and just automatic for you. It also helps you scan for information automatically. And so if you just bought a brand new blue Ford Focus and you're driving your new car on the highway, you are probably gonna see a shit ton of blue Ford Focuses. That you never saw before. You didn't never notice saw them before. before. Yeah. And people will, will think, you know, oh, like this is because I, you know, where did all these people come from? Is everyone copying me? No, it's just that because you put that in your conscious awareness, your brain, that part of your brain, the RAS for short, is scanning for that evidence. It's more aware of it. It's going to notice it more when it comes up. It's not that it actually exists more. You're just going to notice it more. And so in manifesting, that's a big part of the brain that is used with this idea of if you set an intention of, you know, I want, I want a new house. I want to buy a house. And I'm picturing myself in the house and the house looks kind of this way and it's in this kind of an area and you can get kind of specific with what you're picturing for it. Your brain starts going, cool, let's be right about that because your brain is your best wingman and it wants you to be right about anything it's feeding you. <laughs> I'm going to this because it can go the other direction too. But if that's what's on your mind, you're going to start noticing ads for mortgage companies. You're going to start noticing listings um, for sale signs as you're cruising around the neighborhood that might not have been in your immediate awareness before, but because you've been intentional about planting that seed in your brain, your brain's naturally scanning for it. So it might seem like opportunities are falling into your lap, but you've programmed yourself to be more aware of them coming across your path. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, the opposite can be true. And, um, you know, we don't have to totally pivot here, but just as a dating example, you know, if you're feeding your brain, you know, everyone I date treats me like shit. Eventually everyone I date cheats on me, your brain goes, cool. Let's be right about that and start scanning for evidence. That's going to support that. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It becomes confirmation bias where your, your brain says, you know, oh, we're looking for that. And that's actually some of the science behind affirmations as well. Why we want to use positive language, not say, I don't want a cheater. We want to say, I do want someone with integrity so that when your brain's scanning, it's not going cheater, cheater, cheater. It's going integrity, integrity, integrity. Okay. And I was just going to ask you if that's a close cousin of, of confirmation bias, because it sounded very similar of now I'm thinking this, show me information that supports this idea and yeah. you start finding it or seeing it because you've already decided that's the deal. So yes. interesting. Which, you can see that that can be a tool if used in a certain way, but also can be a detriment in other capacities. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, both in dating and, and in the electorate, uh, you know, I worry that we largely struggle to identify 
even the most basic logical fallacies, um, we we don't seem too astute with with taking note of um, you know contradictory evidence or even contradictory statements from the same person or, or things like that. We just aren't we aren't tuned in. We aren't catching it. We aren't paying attention. And I, it, it is so frustrating when what seems like such low hanging fruit, just such obvious, just just like oh God, tell me you didn't believe that. You know, I, I, the the source, the motives, the way it was delivered. I mean, none of it. You believed all of it. You gobbled. You know, so, to me, and I think to a lot of us, we, we see we see some of these things play out in politics, and we just go, God, tell me you're not buying this. And 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 they very much are, just super super buying it. Um, mm-hmm. it, it can be frustrating. I I see similar similar things when I talk to folks that are you know religious or or consider themselves religious uh, i was having a conversation about about miracles and um one of the most there's this very popular video that somebody showed me i don't know 20 20 years ago that basically talks about creation and and the just the mathematical unlikeliness of the earth coming to be and and sustaining life and how the sun has to be at just the right rotation and just the right distance and just the right atmosphere and just the right amount of water and absolutely you bet, man, incredibly fucking unlikely that it would sustain this level of life at all. Fascinating. Amazing. Got it. Still doesn't draw a straight line for me from, from here to, you know, benevolent overlord. Um, but as you take what, what some people take that to mean, so therefore somebody had to create this. Well, or, and walk with me here, (laughs) Everything that has ever, ever, ever happened was in fact possible. Unlikeliness does not equal impossible. Every fucking thing that has literally ever happened was in fact possible. It happened. So there is your evidence that it was in fact possible. You know, and so I, I just gosh, can, can we even see stuff like that? Or are we so determined to cling to some weird ideology that we can't just go, Oh, well, wait a minute. It did happen though. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, if I had to really boil it down to the most simple concept, and of course there's a lot of nuance and talking about nuance, of course, but I think people's fear of an inability to tolerate potentially being wrong and how different people were kind of socialized and taught to experience wrongness in in a lot of families. And I see this a lot in the individual therapy work I do. A lot of people are socialized cultured to, to think that wrongness is a weakness and that if you end up being wrong about something, it's like a, a character flaw and there's something wrong with you. So a lot of people will cling to things despite evidence to the contrary, because they can't tolerate the idea of being wrong or needing to re-examine because what does that mean about them? And if people could get a little bit better at separating that out, um, and, and that is what I see a lot in my breakup work, you know, obviously we do a lot where we talk about what the other person did because most of the people I work with, it was not their choice to end the relationship. So a lot of what we talk about is how the other person hurt them and what wasn't compatible about the other person. But one stage of the process that some people adopt better than others is what was your contribution? Whether it was just the choice of partner in the first place, what you tolerated, what you communicated, how you communicated, what did you contribute to this dynamic? And people have such a hard time 
doing that because they feel like they are admitting some kind of fatal flaw about themselves. And so they need to dig their heels in and subscribe to concepts like, oh gosh, I think it's what the Marilyn Monroe quote that goes around all the time. You know, if you can't handle me at my worst, no. me at my best, <laughs> and like just this kind of carte blanche to kind of be a dick. Right, right. Of a, more of a victim mentality and an inability to look inward at what you might have done that could improve in the future. Um, and I see it in dating. I see it in general critical thinking, politics for sure. You know, believing this, believing that there is a God and creationism and whatever, that was such a part of my identity and my family and who I am that for me to change my mind on that would shatter everything inside of me. And that feels too intolerable. So I'm going to cling to this belief and ignore evidence to the contrary. So yeah. a lot of it comes down to ego. Yeah. There was a, a great Ned Flanders meme from the Simpsons. If, if you can't handle me at my diddliest, you don't deserve me at my doodliest. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and to that, to that extent, I, there is, um, there's another theme that I observe in my fellows, uh, mostly within the dating community, that is, um, we don't know how calendars work. We don't know how clocks work. We suck at making and keeping commitments. And I, and I often talk about these are things that are American because there are, you know, cultural things that contribute to this. Um, and, and it is, you know, to me, I've, for, for a long time, I viewed commitments, even silly ones. I'll meet you at Starbucks at 6 p.m. as an integrity question, as an honesty question. If I tell you I'll be there at 6 p.m., guess where you're going to find me at, at probably 5.50, maybe earlier, because I told you I was going to, so I'm going to. And, and I'm not saying shit doesn't happen, but boy, shit seldom happens with my calendar. Real, real, real seldom do I double book something or blow somebody. I mean, it just doesn't, it's really not a problem. And, uh, um, but boy, it is, I have had people actually sort of give me that. If you can't handle me at my worst, you deserve to be my best. Um, somebody told me, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always late. You know, people love that about me. No, they don't. I, I promise they don't. No, they might love you. A lot of people might love you and they may tolerate that about you. And in fact, they probably even make scheduling adjustments to what they tell you to try to trick you into showing up on time for things. So you are basically being an asshole, you know, blowing people off because you're self-centered and don't give a shit about other people's time. So you just steamroll over whatever plans you said with your mouth, you would follow through with and make them absorb that. So they're showing up like idiots to a thing on time, not doing all the other stuff they could be doing to be there for your sorry ass so that you can come breezing in 15, 30 minutes late and you think that they love that? Stop it. Stop thinking that. I promise they don't. And it, But that's, this is an actual conversation that I actually had. And I told her, nobody loves that about you. I believe they love you and I believe they tolerate that i wouldn't i'm not somebody who will tolerate that but that's just me you know um is is that a problem is that a problem for you in your life i mean you're you run a practice you've got a schedule you gotta you know your your time is valuable well so and this is why in a professional setting i can have rules and boundaries to protect myself from that I have a 24-hour cancellation policy. If you don't let me know more than 24 hours ahead of time that you can't use your appointment, you're getting billed for that entire appointment. If you show up 10 minutes into our allotted 50-minute session, you're getting a 40-minute session. 
And I have that all outlined in my paperwork. Yeah. Problem is more in personal relationships where you can't contract your way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I will say that as a mental health expert, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there are certain things that make this harder for people. People who don't intend to be late or flaky have other stuff interfering for them. There can be, that can be true. Anxiety, ADHD things, whatever. But if you fall into that category, it's your responsibility to know how that condition impacts you and to do everything in your power to use your tools and the resources available to you and your communication to minimize the impact on other people. So if you know, and like, for example, um, if I know that I have a little bit of trouble being right on time, I tend to be three to five minutes late to things. And it's really just an underestimation of how long it's going to take me to, you know, not only be ready to leave, but actually make my way downstairs, find my keys, get into the car, start backing out. Like that adds on another three minutes. I'm not taking into account. So I know that about myself. I have built in cushions. I've built in reminders. I use my calendar functions. I do things and I let people know, Hey, it, the second I realize, oh, it's going to take me 17 minutes to get there and we're supposed to be meeting in 15, I will shoot them a quick text because there doesn't need to be a back and forth on that of, I'm so sorry I left a couple minutes late on my way. Yep. Like there are things you can do to mitigate it. I really don't love the attitude of this is just who I am and how I am. Deal with it. <laughs> I hate that. And you know, my husband does that a little bit and we get into it sometimes. And I have taken to telling him we need get to get him in here. Get him in. Let's, let's have a talk right now. We're going to have this right now. Pull him in. Um, <laughs> but seriously, um, I do like, I tell him we need to leave for dinner at five 45, even though we actually need to leave at like five 50, because I just know that he's going to underestimate it. And, yeah. and that's annoying. Yeah. I've decided I can tolerate that because of all the other good stuff in the relationship. But, you know, that is something that people use as a benchmark of, do I want to continue with this person? Does that value misalign with mine to too large of an extent? Yeah. There are so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, and it seems evident to me as I talk to you, um, Dr. Liner, that, uh, you know, I'm a fucking mess, okay, behind my own relationship stuff. And I have been as long as I remember, you know. Uh, since third grade, I have struggled to feel like I can relate rightly to the outside world. I actually, uh, in a recent trip uh, to, to Oregon, I had the very same bittersweet feeling that I almost always have when I go out there. And I could draw straight lines to exact relationships and how they feel and, and what happens in these relationships and what happened as a kid and older and adolescence and all that. Um, but this, this gnawing idea, this, this sense, this feeling that people don't love me enough and enough people don't love me and that's it, man. And it's somewhere back there and it fucking has been for as long as I remember. I mean, it's just, and I couldn't have told you what it was in third grade, of course, but if it's somewhere in there. There's this intense desire to connect meaningfully with, with everybody and, a repeated onslaught of reminders that I cannot, I am not connected meaningfully with most people as much as I want to, as much as I am willing to be exposed myself, as much as I'm willing to walk towards people, open chested, honest, authentic. It's not a match. And I don't mean just in love life and in intimate, you know, romantic relationships, just generally, you know, um, very, very few people that I want to 
really having those magical connections with uh, my friends, lovers, whoever it might be, uh, family. Um, but that is a that is a resounding thing. I will say one of those things um, is is humor. Um, and one thing I observe is it, a departure from authenticity that I observe in a lot of people is this idea that I should or shouldn't assigning value to I should or shouldn't feel certain things. And we do this, uh, you know, laughing at funerals. Oh, I shouldn't laugh. Says who? You, you had a feeling. It's okay. You know, you didn't decide to have a feeling. You just fucking had a feeling. Um, I shouldn't laugh at that joke. It's an inappropriate joke, but I'm literally stifling laughter because I, I don't think that I should. And if I laugh and then they're going to think and just, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop doing the If I do, then you're going to, and then he's going to, and then I'm going to stop. If it's funny, fucking laugh, be here, be here for it. Can you be here now and, and be okay being who and how you are and knowing that I'm big enough to know that just because you think that's funny, doesn't also mean that you don't appreciate the gravity of maybe the tragedy that underlies the, the content of it or something, you know, I mean, I can laugh at horribly inappropriate things that have tragic content matter. And I can literally donate time and charitable efforts to those causes, but still laugh at the jokes that are just hilarious about that stuff. I am fully capable of doing all of that. And I sure wish other people were too, because it often seems like people kind of approach early interactions with a very conservative presentation of just again it's just layers removed from who you are tell me this isn't how it's going to be if we're sitting on the couch cutting up at some point tell me you're going to be free to just laugh and just be and joke and play and bounce and let's let's volley you know god it's important god it's easy but we make it hard we make it dumb with these notions of who i want to be perceived as and, and, and all these other fears that hop in the way there so just, just another, just another little side gripe, and we don't have time to get to everything. I have a few closing questions for you that okay. I want to ask. Okay, and again, we'll schedule a session. We'll dive back. We'll figure it out. You know, maybe you can fix me. Uh, the breakup doc can fix me here. If anybody can, I'm sure you're the one. Um, I love that you told me I was I was citing cognitive behavioral therapy stuff. That's actually one form of therapy I've never done formally. I've done a shitload of therapy. I've never done that. Um, but I'm sure they've been employed, those those techniques, but that's interesting. So um first of all, what is your I, I do a, a what is your favorite thing? So this will be a little odd, but bear with me. What is your favorite? mental blank spot or inconsistency that you see play out over and over in your clients. Maybe it's your most predictable one, your most common one, one that you're just like, God, that's low hanging fruit. Stop doing that guys. Yeah. Um, inability to see gray area, which I think is, is very apropos of this conversation. Um, I just had a client before we got on and pretty much every time I meet, we'll be, I'll be talking about things in nuance and she'll come back to, well, Today's example was, well, I don't understand, like, I don't want to be friends with people for just a few days, but I don't know how to make relationships work forever either. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> few days or forever. That's it. Yeah. And I, I would like to, you know, challenge or encourage anyone listening right now to think about things that you construct as a dichotomy. Well, it's, I feel like it's either this or it's this challenge yourself on that. What's in between those two? Is there a spectrum? Is there gray area between those two where it doesn't have to be all this way and it doesn't have to be all this way? Where is the nuance in that situation? And people forget to do that for themselves. So sometimes we need a prompt. So here's your prompt. Think about nice. it. Thank that. you. 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, what is an what is an error in thinking that you actually most often engage yourself that you catch yourself doing, or you realize later you were doing that thing again? Yeah. Oh gosh, I could talk about this for ages and ages. Um, but to keep it short, I think um, just misinterpreting other people's intentions and assuming negative intention where there isn't. Okay. So when my husband puts his dish from lunch in the sink, when the dishwasher is empty and available right next to the sink. <laughs> for example, I, my brain very automatically for a lot of reasons we won't get into now translates that as he doesn't care about me. He thinks this is woman's work. He he's disrespecting me by making me have to do that later. <laughs> and really he's, he's a man. He's simple. He was just like, Oh, it's just easier to stick it in the sink. I don't know. Well, and so I appreciate that. So I'm going to tell you, he is disrespecting you. He is saying it's women's work. It is unacceptable. Let's get him in here again, guys. Let's let's get him on Zoom. He, I don't care if he's on a plane. He needs to join this conversation. We're, we're setting up the octagon. No, I, I will tell you, I fully, I am a, uh, a big fan. This is a whole other one of my neuroses, but I'm very tidy and put together and and I just like stuff ready. And to me, Man, the sink is not a staging area, you know? Ideally, dishes would be clean and in the cabinet. In between those places, they really should be in the dishwasher getting ready to be full and run. I've never understood the, I got the glass all the way to the sink area. It's on the counter, next to the sink, next to the dishwasher. When your brain, when you got to there, you went, yeah, counter, nailed it, and walked away. Like, really? I, I just, yeah, it drives me insane. So this has definitely never caused any problems in my relationships before. Just kidding. It definitely has. Okay. <laughs> um, what is your, what is your number one suggestion? And this is tough because I tend to think that most people who are completely lacking in critical thinking skills don't know they're lacking in it and have no interest in improving. But uh, on the off chance that you, uh, you meet anyone who agrees they lack critical thinking skills and seeks to improve, what would be your suggestion for them? How do we begin that? I recommend to clients, whether it's just as a thought exercise or even a journaling exercise. I know some people don't love writing down their thoughts or it feels like extra work to them. So even just thinking about it, but whenever you have a feeling, an opinion, a, a narrative you're telling in your head, what would the other side look like? Kind of like going back to high school debate, like, okay, take the other position and just practice doing that sometimes. For example, you know, if you're someone throughout the day that thinks, oh, you know, this job really sucks and I'm never going to get anywhere in this career and oh, I hate going to work, like just for fun, think about what's good about it. What would you enjoy about it? What might you miss in another situation? And that's a super basic, boring example, but just let yourself argue with yourself a little bit. No one has to know about it. You don't have to be vulnerable and put it in a public space because like I mentioned earlier, that fear of being wrong and what that means for people, but just play around with it yourself. How could you take the other position? How could you poke holes in the argument you're currently making? Play around with that by yourself before invoking other people to get some comfort with it. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. And that's funny. Cause I've, I've been in like sales type positions and I've had some very profound relationships with attorneys, lots of them, um, both romantic and family, familial relationships. And, uh, and, and people who think in argument, think in making a case, selling an idea, um, getting to yes, whatever it might be are, are some of my favorite people. And, and they're some of my favorite people to bat around 
energized topics with. I mean, I, I will tell you, man, I have some very strong ideas. You may have noticed. I have some strong opinions and ideology on stuff, but I'm serious. I would love to be moved. I would love to be moved, but frankly, compel me, show me, demonstrate, point to some evidence, show me something that is informed and thoughtful and powerful and compelling. I, I, I don't buy bullshit. I don't buy bullshit real easily, but dude, I'm super interested in, in growing and being moved. Um, and so it is those sort of iron sharpens iron conversations that I love so much with witty informed people. You are certainly one of them, um, that you've already challenged me on a, a couple of things today that I found quite palatable because you're, you're fucking smart. You know what you're talking about it. And I can tell, and I can hear it. And it's not, as you say, it's not these obnoxious black and white trying to jam everything into some stupid box. No, you understand there's a spectrum here. So easy for me to have these kinds of conversations. And I just keep trying to ask myself, is it possible there's any truth to this? That to me is the little, you know, if I hear it, something that's antithetical to what I think, is there any truth to this? Yeah. Not, is it 100% true? Do I fully subscribe to it? But is there anything here? I might be able to consider, file it away, let it percolate. Okay, maybe wow. it'll grow. Maybe, it, maybe it'll take me somewhere, you know? And that's, that's it, man. Am I available to be moved? God, I hope so. I fucking hope so. I love yeah. that, that available to be moved. And if I can just add really quickly, just a communication skill that I wish more people had is you can have the strongest opinion about something. You can feel really strongly about something, but are you being collaborative in conveying that opinion? Do you just get on a soapbox and rant for 20 minutes straight and no one can get a word in edgewise? Do you add pauses? Do you say, I'd love your thoughts on this because my thoughts are this. Do you invite people to argue with you? Because some people are just going to say, okay, well, he's, he's very adamant about this and I can't get a word in and I'm not going to try to fight him on it. So how can you invite people to do that work with you and give yourself the opportunity to be moved? And, and I think that's just such a skill and I wish more people embodied that. Yeah. Yeah. And I usually say things like, okay, now it's your turn to say your dumb thoughts. Go <laughs> ahead. I'll tolerate it. You know? And I think that's very gracious of me to, to create that opening. So, <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Andrea Liner is the breakup doc. Um, you can find her at drandrealiner.com and in the liner notes for our listeners, if you are interested um, in connecting, seeing if she would be a good fit for any sort of her counseling or coaching services, um, highly qualified, a lot of expertise in the areas we've been talking about, uh, but specifically in, in relationships, breakups, things like this. Boy, I, I, I can't help but think who among us couldn't benefit from some, some effort to avail ourselves to a little bit of outside assistance in this area, whether we're in an active relationship or not. Um, but I'm going to put in the liner notes how to contact her. You can uh, go through that channel to schedule, um, you know, schedule consults and things like that. And you guys can come to terms as to whether something like that's going to work for you. And um, Andrea, I can't thank you enough for being here on the Mediocre Observer podcast. This was delightful. And uh, I might have to have you back at some point um, to talk more, more specifically um, about, uh, oh gosh, a number of things. We could dive deeper into the electorate. We could dive deeper into dating. Um, I think it'd be a hoot to just have you uh, 
take an honest look at me and my difficulties, it wouldn't be a hoot for me, but I think it would be entertaining for other people to listen. I think I could be valuable. So, no, I can't thank you enough for joining us and um, I'm gonna wish you the very best out there. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. All right, we'll talk soon.